Amen. We'll go and have a seat and get your Bible out. Let's continue to worship the Lord by opening the scriptures. Uh, Turn to 1 Corinthians. And normally I'd give you a chapter, but we're actually going to be all over 1 Corinthians this morning as we are doing our review or or kind of the final uh, run of 1 Corinthians. And so while a large number of, uh, a large portion of this book has been a rebuke, honestly, that Paul has given to the Corinthian church. Uh, What we see is that this rebuke in the messiness of this church is actually used and it serves to drive the people to Christ. And, and so, so let me just get right to the main idea here this morning, and, and then we're going to get into uh, kind of being all over the place. But he, here's when we think about Corinthians as a whole, and we titled this series Messy Church uh, because this is a very messy church with uh, no shortage of issues and problems that they were having to navigate and deal with. <clears throat> but as we think about the, the, the whole of the book, it, it's this idea right here that the messiness of church should drive us to the sufficiency of Christ, that the messiness of church, what it should do, what what it should create in us is it's going to drive us toward the sufficiency of Christ. That as you and I, as sinful, messy, broken, flawed people do life with one another, right? That's the messiness of church. What it fosters and facilitates is pushing and driving and and causing us to go back to and return uh, to Jesus. And and in as much as there's certainly a a level of emphasis on rebuke in the the book and Paul uh, dealing with a number of the failures and the shortcomings of the Corinthians, that the totality of the book is not fixated on this. In fact, a lot of what Paul does over the course of 1 Corinthians is that he points to the sufficiency of God's grace. And so as we move through this overview, kind of this flyover, if you will, uh, in our final week in 1 Corinthians, what we want to see is we want to see the work of the gospel. We want to see the grace of God and how that addresses our failures, our inadequacies, and our shortcomings. And so really our goal this morning is to capture some of the main highlights, some of the points of emphasis, some of the primary themes. Uh, that drive through uh, this book. And then a little bit different uh, than what we typically have on a Sunday, but on the back end of the message, we've intentionally left time uh, to answer questions. And so you'll notice at the bottom of the bulletin, if we can put that phone number up right now too, Dwayne, if you want to put that up. Uh, So you can text questions to this number. That's my cell number. And we do that so that if something doesn't get answered in the service, uh, I can follow up with you during the week. But if there are questions, whether it be from today or at any point in time during 1 Corinthians where you're going, hey, I'm a little confused by this. This doesn't make total sense to me. I'm struggling to apply this. Whatever it may be, that at any point in time during the service, you shoot a, a question in. And then as they come in, they'll put them in at the end of the service. They'll just pop up on the screen and the best of my ability, uh, I'll answer those. Now, here's the deal. The the goal is not, can we stump Mike? That's not hard. Okay. Plenty of people have, and plenty of people will. Uh, The the goal is, Hey, I'm struggling with this. I don't understand this. Can you give clarity to this? Uh, Things of that nature. So I'm going to assume if I see you on your phone, you're actually texting a question, not checking the score of some game or or something else that's going on. Um, Because if we get to the service and you've been playing on your phone and nothing shows up, God just outed you. And then we're having another conversation. Okay. Uh, But before we go any further and before we get into uh, some of the things uh, that we'll start with in terms of themes, I think we would do well to just humble ourselves to pray, to ask God to have his way with us. uh, And then we'll get into what he has for us here. Pray with me. 
Heavenly Father, we come before you. God, we thank you for this book. I thank you for the ways that uh, you are teaching and instructing and guiding and uh, facilitating and, and opening our eyes and exhorting and encouraging and rebuking and all these different things that you've done for us. Uh, over the course of of 1 Corinthians. And God, we pray today that as we we just look at it in a broader stroke, that you would give us some really helpful handles uh, on how to think of the book on how to be reminded of some of these great truths and also how to implement and apply these things into our lives. God, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area this morning. We pray for Mosaic Church. And God, for Adam Viramontes, God, I thank you for that brother and that friend. Thank you for the good work that they're doing. And God, we ask that you would be moving and working in them and helping them to love you and to serve you and follow you and give themselves in totality over to you in the same way that we would want that for ourselves. And so, God, we pray that you would help us uh, to see what you would have us see. God, that our, 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 our spirits would be open to receive uh, what you would choose to give to us. Um, and then, God, in humility, uh, would we respond accordingly uh, to your good word for us. So, Jesus, we love you, we thank you, and we surrender ourselves to you now. And we pray this in your name. Amen. <clears throat> Well, the title of the message is uh, 1 Corinthians Review, uh, which is probably the most boring title you'll ever hear, but that's what we're doing, and that's what I've got for you. Uh, so if you want to title it something different, you feel free to do whatever. But that's all I uh, gave to us this morning. But that's what we're doing, is a review of uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. And really, the, the objective uh, is, is for us to see some of the bigger themes, some of the mountain peaks, if you will, uh, that Paul has unfolded for us as we've moved through uh, this book. And, and hopefully give us some handles uh, by which to, to understand 1 Corinthians. And then as we move on to what God has for us in the future, uh, that this becomes a, a useful resource for us. Now, we won't be anchored to a text like we typically are. We're going to kind of move to a variety of texts in a moment. Uh, we'll be in chapter 13. You can begin to turn there now if you want. Um, but, but really the, the goal being grabbing some of these larger uh, principles. And so I've got three We could have done 10, but we would have been here for forever. Uh, But really three that seem to stand out above the rest. And so we'll work through these three and then get to questions on the back end. Um, But here's the first. And really so much of the book drives towards this conclusion in chapter 13. But here's the first theme that we see emerging from the book of 1 Corinthians, and it's this. Is that love is the authenticator of our salvation. Well, that love is the authenticator of our spirituality. And so all that Paul drives toward at the end or in chapter 13 through the first 12 chapters is moving towards this idea that the biblical love, as characterized in chapter 13, it proves, it identifies, it authenticates, it marks us out as men and women that belong to Jesus. Now, there was no shortage of ways that the Corinthians wanted to uh, attach that identity or attach that marking to other things uh, within them. So they would talk about their giftedness and this is what proves that I belong to Jesus or my status or, or my knowledge or my wisdom or all these other things. But what Paul has done is he's driven us to this point. That, that love is what authenticates, it's what marks out, it what's, it's what proves that we belong to Christ. And, and, and all that to say, that there's some really important implications that come out of this that we need to, to make note of. First of all, that, that this idea of love and being the authenticator and the marker of our salvation and something that's being commonly displayed in our lives, 
That's not something that's reserved only for mature Christians. This isn't something that's just for Christians who are gifted or good at this. It's not just for Christians who like this. This is for all believers. If you belong to Christ, what Paul is saying is that it should be demonstrated in the way that you love other people. So think about baptism. Right, you think about baptism. Baptism doesn't save us, right? When you put someone into the water, right, there's not this magical thing where now they're saved and regenerate. No, baptism is a symbol that points to a work that God has already done in their life that has brought them to a point of regeneration. And, and, and we just look at that and we go, God's already done something in them. And we just celebrate collectively what that is. And love, the way that you and I love one another, is meant to function in a similar or form or fashion. And this is really crucial because it, it just eliminates any sense that it's optional for us. Those people can love. I'm, I'm not very good at loving people, so I don't have to. There's no option in this. That's what Paul is saying. When Jesus intervenes in our life, he begins to change us. That's what he told the disciples in John 13 in the upper room. He's like, how are people going to know that you belong to me? That you what? That you love one another, right? That's what he's saying. He's like, this is how it's going to be bore out. This is how it's going to be proven. And here's the deal about that love, biblical love, this love here in 1 Corinthians 13. It's not just that I love people when I agree with them. It's not that I just love people when we like each other and we get along. It's not just that I love people um, be, be, be because we're similar. The love he's talking about here is that I love them really in spite of them. I love them when I'm at odds with them. I love them when we disagree with each other. I love them when they're obnoxious. I even love them when they sin against me. See, that's the radical transformation that can only happen if Jesus has gripped you, which is Paul's whole point here, that love is what authenticates. This is what gives credibility to the fact that I belong to Jesus. And so he spends 12 chapters laying out all these different things. And all of the different issues and all the different shortcomings and all the ways that the Corinthians have failed one another. And so when he gets to chapter 13, what he's really saying is, hey, do you see all these things about love? Do you see when I say that love is patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy or boast, it's not arrogant or rude? And he's on that. He's like, do you see all that? And I'm like, yeah. And he's going, you're none of this. That's what he's saying to them. You don't look anything like this. And in that, it's a rebuke. But the gospel, right, when the gospel has its effect, it changes you and I. And so just for the sake of clarity, let's make sure we have clarity on biblical love here, right? Biblical love is not reciprocal, right? I don't get what I give. It's not even. It's not fair. It's not balanced. If you want a definition, here's my favorite definition of love. I don't know where I got it. I'm pretty sure I got it from my mother-in-law and she got it from someone else. But here it is. Love is taking the initiative to act sacrificially on behalf of another. Love is taking the initiative to act sacrificially on behalf of another. So it's completely focused outward. It's completely focused towards others, right? There's no orientation towards self. There's no orientation towards my wants, my needs. Biblical love really doesn't care about your thoughts or your feelings because it is consumed with others. Now, you might go, I don't know if I can live like that. 
we have no problem taking, uh, taking advantage of God's love to you. Right? We're all for this when we're the recipient of this. Right? We'll get all geeked up and excited when I get to be the one who receives a love that I don't deserve. Right? This is what's true of anyone who's in Christ. Right? We, 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 we know that God chooses to love a people that does not deserve to be loved. And in that, it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And we have no problem with that. We're, I'm for this. But what about being on the other side of that? What about being the one who extends love to someone that does not deserve to be loved? Can you do that? Can you love people that wrong you? Slander or revile or mistreat or take advantage of you? Can you love people that don't love in return, right? Where it's one-sided. And these guys seem to take a whole lot more than they tend to give. Right? Can you do that? Now, in and of ourselves, the answer is no, you can't. <laughs> That's Paul's whole point. You can't do this. This is the proof that Jesus has captured you and that this is what the supernatural work of God does. This is the proof that you belong to him because you're doing something that no human could do. But what's important for us to understand is that our love for others is worked out from a place where God is facilitating in and through us. And so this love is not this white-knuckled resolve of I'm going to be better and do more and harder, but it's the transforming work of the Spirit. And I don't love others because I try harder. I love others because Jesus is changing me. This is the gospel, right? This is the good news of what Christ has done. That even though God created us to dwell and to live in perfect harmony and unity with him, when we reject God's ways and we reject what God would have for us, we're, we're, that the Bible uh, defines that as sin. So when we sin against God, we're separated or we're alienated from God. And God, instead of choosing to place the punishment of our sin upon us and destroy us, instead chooses to take that and place it on his son Jesus in your place and in my place. And so Jesus bears the wrath. Jesus takes the punishment. Jesus goes to the cross. And part of the result of that is you and I are brought back into relationship with God. That when it comes to the horizontal component, I now love others who are not worthy or deserving of my love because God has already done that for me. Because at the end of the day for the Corinthians, their thing, their issue was that they lacked a genuine love for other people. They loved themselves. They loved their thing. They were proud and they were arrogant. You know what the opposite of love is? It's pride and arrogance. And repeatedly, Paul has already told the Corinthian church... Especially back in chapters 4 and 5, he's like, you're arrogant. You're arrogant. You're arrogant. He keeps telling them, you're arrogant. So actually, when you get to 13.4, when he says, love is not arrogant, that's maybe the clearest part of that, that whole section where Paul's saying, you're nothing like love. I'm willing to bet most people in Corinth didn't think that they were arrogant. I'm willing to bet most people sitting here right now don't think that they're arrogant. And when we tend to think of arrogance, we, we tend to really exaggerate it. Right? So I'm not arrogant. You're not arrogant. We're not arrogant. But it's this thing that, tell me about yourself. Well, I'm better than you. 
I love myself more than I love you. And you do really well to love me too, because I'm just that much better. That's what we tend to think. Like just this outlandish over-exaggeration. You meet someone like that, you're like, what a whack job, right? But what you and I should consider, is it possible that I'm arrogant? Well, how would I know? Well, arrogance is the antithesis of biblical love. Biblical love is spelled out for us here in 1 Corinthians 13. Here's what he says. Let me read this. Love is patient and kind. Let me just stop. Keep in mind, this is a rebuke. Okay? A lot of times we see this read at weddings. And it's all sappy and emotional. Um, Paul's probably got a little bit of steam coming out of his head as he's writing this. This is a firm rebuke to them because they're none of these things. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. But rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So when you think about that list, here's my question for you. Is that how you respond to people that annoy you? Is that how you respond to people that get on your nerves? Is that how you respond to people that if you really had your choice, you'd never hang out with them? Is that how you respond to people that all you want to do when they talk, you just want to roll your eyes? Because that's what Paul's getting at. It's easy to love someone who likes you and that you get along with. That's not love. That's just shared interest. Love is I'm willing to be patient and kind for someone that's just really annoying. And it's not deserved. See, that's gospel love. Which is what Christ has done for us. And frees us to love others in the same form, in the same fashion. And ironically enough, proves that we belong to Jesus. Love is the authenticator of our salvation. Secondly, I'll flip back over to chapter 12, and we'll get to it here in a moment, but, but kind of big major theme uh, in the book is that God gives spiritual gifts to build up the church. God gives us spiritual gifts, and he does so to build up the church. And, and a large part of what the Corinthians had going on is, is, is they looked for, um, the, right, in their giftedness, they, they misunderstood their gifts, they misapplied their gifts, they misused their gifts, and they thought that their gifts actually authenticated their salvation and their spirituality. And so Paul's correcting them and saying, no, that's not how it worked. Uh, it, it's love that authenticates that, as we've just talked about. But notice a few things here specific to chapter 12, although Paul has built an argument up to this point, but around this idea of gifts, that God gives spiritual gifts to build up the church. First, look at verses 1, 2, and 3, and I just wrote this down, that we find identity in Christ, not in giftedness. That you and I are to find our identity in Christ, not in our giftedness. Look at what Paul says. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts... So remember now concerning us, Paul's responding to a letter from the Corinthians, and we've seen this multiple times in the letter, and he's going to talk about spiritual gifts. And then for the next two and a half verses, he says nothing about spiritual gifts. Look at what he says. Brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. About what? You know that when you were pagans, whoa, wait a sec, what are you? It's like, remember, remember life before Jesus? That's what he's talking about here. Right? He takes them back to life before Jesus. He's helping them to see that their identity is in Christ. And to have their identity fixed in Christ is actually a wonderful gift to them. 
And he's like, remember when you found your identity in other things? Remember when you had to hold on to being talented or to, to, to being attractive or to being wealthy or to being healthy or whatever it was for, for that to be your thing? Because here's what you got to understand about any identity that's not rooted and fixed in Christ is you're playing a losing game. And it's just going to get worse as, as you chase that rabbit down the hole. Here's what I mean by this. When I put my identity in blank, and you go ahead and fill in the blank, right? There's no shortage of things. It could be your work or your career. It could be your family. It could be your bank account. It could be uh, how popular you are, how healthy you are, whatever it is. When you put and find identity in that, I am only as meaningful as that thing is. And so the moment that that thing begins to falter, the moment that that thing begins to fade, the moment that that thing begins to go away, which by the way, God has a fascinating way of stripping idols from our lives for our good. But the moment that that begins to disappear, we we start clinging harder and harder and harder to that. Because if I lose that, we're left to answer the question, what am I? Which if my identity is built in my family or my career or whatever, the moment that it's lost, all I can say to that is I'm nothing. And it's a fool's errand. And so we'll strive and we'll work and we'll exhaust ourselves to try to maintain it, but it's not maintainable. And there's this monstrous sense of bondage that grips us in that. And so we'll give ourselves over to these things in the hopes that it will continue to give us what we want it to give us. And for the Corinthians, that was their gifts. Now contrast that with what Paul wants to do here in helping them to find their identity in Christ. This unmaintainable, slowly slipping away, futile endeavor. Or you can put your identity in Christ, which is finished and fixed. It's firm. It's unchanging. And no one can change it, right? Because there's no wondering if I'm still going to be a redeemed child of God next week or 25 years from now. Because it has everything to do with Jesus and nothing to do with myself. And I don't have to wonder as to whether or not Jesus' grace is still going to be sufficient 20 years from now. Because it's firm and it's fixed. And so in that, we're, we're free to live in the fullness of what Christ has done for us. There's not this stress, there's not this burden, there's not this weight of, you know, I have to maintain this or keep being this or keep proving this or keep demonstrating this. I'm a beloved child of God. I don't really care what anyone else thinks. That's the freedom in that. Because I'm not holding tightly to that. And so we find identity in Christ, not in giftedness. Secondly, again, listen carefully to this. Our giftedness does not imply spiritual maturity. Your giftedness, my giftedness, does not imply that you and I are spiritually mature. Go back to chapter 1. It's a fascinating thing that Paul does here. Chapter 1, verse 7. He says this. He says to the church, so that you're not lacking in any gift. And that word gift is a gift that runs throughout the entirety of the book. And uh, it's, it's a reference to spiritual gifts or grace gifts or things of that nature. He's like, you don't like any gift. You have every imaginable gift that you could want. Th- th- this church is like the Golden State Warriors of churches in terms of gifts. They got weapons on weapons on weapons. 
But look at what he says in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. And so he's not saying that they're not saved. What he's saying is you're immature. So all the giftedness in the world, two chapters later, you're immature. I can't even refer to you as spiritual. You're like little kids. See, our giftedness does not imply our maturity. And while this was an issue in Corinth, I think it might actually be a bigger issue in the American church today. Because we are so prone, we're so tempted to want to look at what someone can do. Right? That, that's what we run to. We're, we're prone to look at competency before we are to look at character. Do you, do you see how good they are? Do you see how talented they are? Do you see all these things that they can accomplish? Now, listen to me. God doesn't care what you can do. Did you hear that? God doesn't care, and nor is he impressed. What are you going to do that's going to be impressive to God? Man, you should have seen this project we did. Yeah, God's like, really? That's impressive. I said a couple words, and the Rocky Mountains showed up. I said a word, and the Grand Canyon came into being. This is child's play. I don't care about your petty project. Right? We're not going to impress God with what we do. So God doesn't care what we do. God cares about who we are. And who you are, listen very carefully to me, who you are has very little to do with what you do. Are you tracking with me on that? See, to develop the gift, to develop the craft, but to ignore the character is one of the biggest mistakes that you and I can make. And and if you want an example in in present-day America, look no further than the explosion of the concept of the celebrity pastor. And all these guys who are crazy talented communicators. I mean, these guys are gifted and they're intelligent and they're smart. And I feel like about once every six weeks, one of them gets fired because they're immature. Right? Paul would say to them, I couldn't address you as spiritual. I mean, think about this, right? God calls us into relationship before he ever calls us into work. And even when God calls us into work, the work that he calls us to is rooted in our relationship with him. And so giftedness, it's a great kindness that God gives to the church, but it says nothing about our maturity. In fact, I think some people hide their immaturity behind their giftedness. And we don't see through it because we're so prone to look at competency, not at character. And so, loved one, my encouragement to you is don't, don't focus on developing the gift. Don't focus on developing the craft. By all means, right, you, you're going to get better. And not, not that you ignore it, but, but spend the bulk of your time and your energy developing spiritual maturity. The beauty of the Holy Spirit is the Spirit takes very normal, very average, very mundane individuals and, and accomplishes very great gospel work in and through them. God doesn't need you and I to be really talented. God is calling us to be men and women of character. And so develop that, develop the integrity, develop the holiness, and allow the spirit to develop the giftedness. So God gives spiritual gifts to build the church. We find identity in Christ, not giftedness. Secondly, our giftedness does not imply maturity. Thirdly, go back to chapter 12. Uh, Just a couple of things here on the use of our gifts uh, to build up uh, the church. 
So, so in full, full honesty, when we taught through chapter 12, one of the things that was really, really surprising to me was the number of people uh, who, who talked about confusion um, or uncertainty or, or didn't really have a sense uh, with respect to their own giftedness or to how that played out or things uh, of that nature. And so it revealed to me there was more confusion or maybe a greater lack of understanding, certainly than I thought uh, existed within uh, the church. So, so in, in thinking about how do we address that? How do we get to that? Uh, what do we do with that? Um, let me ask you a question that I think will be helpful for us. Uh, if we were to do uh, some kind of workshop, uh, Sunday after church or Saturday morning or something like that, a couple hours where we uh, help to understand giftedness, help to understand how it's utilized, uh, where it plays out, things of that nature. If we were to do that on a scale of one to 10, you're at least a seven on, yeah, I'd be really interested in doing that. Before I ask you to raise your hands, it does me no good if you're like, I'm a four, but I don't want to make him feel bad. Just don't raise your hands. Okay. Um, so, so, so if you're not interested, that doesn't help me. That actually harms us. Uh, if you're not honest, so seven or higher, I'd be really interested in that. Just raise your hand. Just show me. Okay. That's helpful. Thank you. Uh, and so uh, between that and first service, that certainly warrants us uh, putting something together. And so we'll work on that uh, and get that uh, out. <clears throat> so a few things here. Let me, let me come back to the text. Uh, we're, we're given, uh, or, or God gives us these gifts to build the church. Three things. Look at verses uh, of chapter 12, 4, 5, and 6. Uh, three things I want us to see. In fact, let me just read verses 4, 5, and 6 first. He says, there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit, and varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. And so in terms of using our gifts to build the church, first of all, that notice that we're given a variety of gifts. That's what he tells us in verse 4. A variety of these gifts that come to the church. But as he talks about a variety of gifts and of service and activities, you notice that there's a singular purpose. It's all about that same Lord, same God, same spirit. And so even though we have this variety of gifts, there is a singular purpose that is about the glorification and the magnification of Christ. And sometimes what we do is we want to take the singular purpose and we want to move that over to the gift side. And we want to really emphasize this gift. Don't do that. Let there be the variety of gifts that drives us to the singular purpose of Christ. We're given a variety of gifts. Secondly, notice that our gifts are empowered by God. He says that in verse 6. Right, so there's no arrogance. Uh, there's no credit. There's no claim that we take in using our gifts. God is not only the one who has given it to us, but he's also empowering it within us. Paul says earlier back in chapter 4, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why, why, why do you act as if you did not receive it? And so as we use our gifts, let us do so in humility. Let us be quick to ascribe credit and honor and glory to God as we, as we utilize them, knowing that he's the one that's empowered them. And then he gets into, starting in verse 7, uh, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for the benefit of the church. And through the rest of the chapter and even all the way through 13 and 14, but we see this idea of us using our gifts to serve and build the church. God's very clear. That's why he gave us gifts. To serve and to build the church. And I don't think any of us would argue with that. I I think where we tend to get sideways on this or where we get confused on this is how we see the application and the usage of those gifts playing out. Because for a lot of us, I, I think what we tend to think is we think about, I can only use my gifts in the corporate gathering. 
Or that if it's not happening on Sunday morning, then I'm not really using my gifts. Now, first of all, we've got to quit thinking about church as only something that we do on Sunday morning or a Bible study that we do during the week and going on Sunday morning. Church is a people thing, and it's a comprehensive thing. But as you think about the usage of gifts, I mean, maybe this would be surprising to, to hear this, but I mean, it just makes perfect sense as you read the scriptures. While there are some gifts that are primarily used in the corporate gathering, there are a number of other gifts that are primarily used outside of the corporate gathering or maybe even exclusively outside of the corporate gathering. So evangelism, hospitality, mercy, service, right? While some of these things certainly can show up in the corporate gathering, the vast majority of gifts like that and a host of others are actually going to show up outside of the Sunday morning gathering. And so in Ephesians 4, Paul says to the Ephesian church, he says, God gave you pastors and teachers and prophets and apostles, right, that, that list. And then he says something really fascinating right after that. He gives some people those gifts. Why? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Maybe a helpful way of thinking of Sunday morning is this is equipping time. And the other 167 hours of the week is working time. As opposed to this is working time and then we're not really sure what we do with the rest of the week. But for the vast majority of people, the the, the primary utilization of our gifts is actually going to show up outside of the corporate gathering. So maybe it's helpful to think of it, for for me, the the terms I've used is formal and informal. There's a formal dynamic to the usage of spiritual gifts that show up on a, on a Sunday morning. And then there's a whole lot of informal usage of gifts that show up on a Sunday morning. Are the formal, is the formal usage of the gifts better and more important than the informal? Of course not. So we, 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 we got we to have a, a cleaner, clear understanding of the utilization of our gifts and that we're to use our gifts to serve and build the church. God gives spiritual gifts to build up the church. Okay, final, and then we'll get to questions. If you have a question, um, would encourage you to get it in soon. Uh, but here, one, one final thing here before we get to the questions. I actually found myself to be uh, quite surprised at this one. I had a, a list of different things that I just saw as being thematic and important. And uh, if you would have asked me Monday morning of last week if this one would have been on the list, I would have said no. But just the more I studied, the more it just continued to move up and, and to see the prominence of this. But here, here's the final uh, item that we see here, and it's this. It's that we are called into community through Christ's work. That we're called into community through Christ's work. And there's actually this pervasive sense of community that drives throughout the entirety of 1 Corinthians. And so three, three quick observations on this, and then we'll get to questions. First of all, that we're called to live in community. It's a calling, right? Not optional, but a calling. In fact, both the front end and the back end of 1 Corinthians, the book is bookended by this sense of community. So last week we talked about a healthy biblical community in chapter 16 and a number of aspects in that. Let me direct your attention here for a moment back to chapter 1, and I'm going to go to verse 2. Here's what Paul says. And this notion of called to live in community, this isn't simply some idealized hope that Paul has. This is a call that God gives. Verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called. Now, anytime you see that word called in the Bible, it's not optional. 
Okay? It's not if you feel like it. It's not if you want to. It's not if it works for you. That is the sovereign, ruling, reigning God of the universe telling you, do this. Okay? So what is it that we're called to do? We're called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. See, we're called to live in community. Now, in our highly individualized way of life, we've taken aspects of community in the church and and we kind of treat it like a buffet, right? When you go to a buffet, what do you do? You skip the salad because no no one's paying to eat salad at a buffet. You go right to the meat, right? And you get the stuff that you want. But even in that, right, you're going to pick and choose what you want. Some of you might eat salad, but you're wasting your time. That's a waste of your time. What are you doing? Okay. But, but you get the point, right? You pick and choose. There's no option here. There's no, I want the benefit of people to come alongside me when it's hard, but I don't want to serve people when life's easy, right? We're called to be saints. So you know what that means? It means that we share life with one another. So what does it mean to share life with one another? Well, it means that I share meals with one another, which means you got to have people into your home and you got to go into people's homes. It means that you're willing to walk alongside one another in the, in the, in the great moments of life and in, in, in the horrible moments of life. But you also got to share life in the mundane, ordinary, normal moments of life, which, by the way, is most of life. Got to be willing to walk through battling sin together. We got to pray together. We got to read the Bible together. This is what it is to live in community, that we share a life with one another. Called to live in community. Secondly, I think this next point has been so just eye opening for me and, and, and challenging and helpful for me specifically looking at chapter 11 in the Lord's table, but we see this aspect of community that we're called to be a community that's formed by the gospel. The community of God is formed or shaped by the gospel. That's what makes this community different than all other communities. Right? This is the foundational root of, of what's going on in this church. In fact, that's why it was so grievous at the Lord's table that people were, were, were forgetting about what made the community what it was. Because the gospel is intended to transcend barriers, not create and erect them. And this is what makes the gospel so powerful. It's people that are radically different from us, who believe so differently from us, who look so differently from us, who act so differently from us. And and yet, not only does God bring us together in an organization, he makes us family. That we become brothers and sisters because the gospel is forming and the gospel is shaping the community of God. Most groups, most clubs, most organizations, communities, they're built around commonalities. Things that we have in common, things that we share together, how we're alike. So we all like the same politician, or we all like the same team, or we all like the same, uh, or in the the same stage of life, or we all have kids this age, or we're all this same ethnicity, or we're all the same gender, or whatever it is. You know what the gospel does with that? Is it turns that thing on its head. And it melts all of that. Because it's not just a community where there's this shared interest or shared affinity, but it's a partnership that actually transcends all lines, social, racial, generational, economic, all of them just melt when it comes to the gospel. So here, let me give you a few examples. So, so 
One of the things I love, just love about this church is, is the different stages of life that are represented here. And so we got women who are pregnant. We got itty bitty babies uh, and we got people in their eighties and their nineties and everything in between. And it's this, this beautiful conglomeration of, of, of every stage uh, and facet of life. Um, and when, when I first came on staff, that was actually one of the things that was really, really exciting to Becky and I was to see the multi-generational dynamic uh, of the church. But when I first came on staff, I was 32 years old. Church, y'all were crazy. I don't know what you were thinking, okay? Um, but, but I was 32. And one of the things I heard, and I, I don't think it was meant to be um, derogatory, and maybe it was and just veiled, but, but I hear people make statements like, you're young enough to be my son. Um, and then some people like, you're young enough to be my grandson, which I loved, right? That's a healthy dynamic within the church. And, and so I even have this weird thing. Even now, sometimes in elder meetings, I'll sit there and I'll be looking around the table. And, and, and I'm so glad that Kyle came on because Kyle's like at least within a few years uh, of me. But sometimes I'm looking around the table and it always feels like that, that game they play in Sesame Street, which of these things doesn't belong. And it's like all these old, wise, mature guys. And then there's this young idiot kid over here. Right. Um, and, and yet he, here's what happens is there's a brotherhood with those guys and we truly are brothers. And I own my role as the annoying little brother. Like I just own that. Um, and they lean into the different roles as well, but that's, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen outside of the gospel. Or Becky and I, from time to time, there's, there's a group of older women uh, that, that they play cards regularly, but every once in a while, they let us be a part of that. Um, and it's just this, this, it's one of my favorite nights of the year uh, when we get to do that. And, and Carol Wilson, Carol Wilson was in first service. So um, she, she will start talking trash to me weeks before. Like getting trash talked by an 80-year-old woman is one of the coolest things that's ever happened to me in my life, which means my life is really lame or super cool. I'm not sure which, okay? Uh, but she will do that. Of course, I asked Carol, Carol, have you ever beaten me? And she responded simply by saying that I cheat, which is not true, okay? But it's this wonderful, glorious thing. Like where is a 38-year-old guy going to hang out with an 80-year-old woman? That doesn't happen outside of the gospel, but in the gospel, it's this beautiful partnership where brothers and sisters get to be together, right? And you think about that, or you think about, uh, we don't like to admit that we're stratified uh, economically in our society. We like to think that we're free from that. Come on, don't be fools. Like that totally exists in our society, but the gospel melts that. And, and, And ethnically, the gospel melts, and we can go on and on and on. The gospel shapes the community, which is why people that are radically different than you can become your brother or your sister. So here, I'll give you a personal example. Randy Bowen. Randy Bowen is as much my brother as my two biological brothers are. Like that guy's my road dog. But on the surface, what, what do he and I share in common? Right? If you strip away the gospel... We're two radically different people. Randy has tattoos. I have no tattoos. Randy is crazy musical. I can't even sing and clap to the beat. Okay. Randy's really artistic. Uh, I am not at all artistic. In fact, this week we were together, a few of us, and they were talking about some music stuff. And I'm just sitting at the table and I'm thinking they could be speaking Chinese right now. And it would make more sense to me. But he's all geeked up about some record. He and Joel were sitting there talking. I'm like, this is so over my head. Like, I don't get any of this. All these radical differences and distinctions. That's my brother. Because the gospel shapes 
the community. I mean, for goodness sakes, we just hired a guy that's a Raiders fan. I don't know if we should praise God for his providence or repent. Like, I'm still confused, you know? But that's what the gospel does, is it shapes the community. We're called to be a community formed by the gospel. Finally, this, within the community, because the gospel shapes the community, is we're meant to be a distinct community. This is what Paul is talking about all over the place in this letter. Right? Ways in which we fail to be distinct In fact, here, let me give you a handful of them just real quick, and then we'll get to questions. Uh, First of all, he calls us to be a holy community. That's what's going on in chapter 5 with that guy who's sleeping with his stepmom, and Paul's calling the church to to, to boot them or to boot him out, uh, and just that whole weird thing. But but see, the the issue there is, is a failure to be distinct. There's a failure of holiness that's happening there. The temptation in Corinth, much like today, the temptation today to accommodate to the culture is strong. It's strong. But the church is meant to be a holy community. We're meant to be distinct. And I think in a lot of ways we've abdicated this, and I think in a lot of ways we've lost this. I don't know if it's because if we think we'll be more likable if we're more like the culture, which just isn't true. We're just a, we're just a bad imitation. We're called to be distinct to be set apart, to have a firm conviction of what God has called us to do and be. A number of years ago, my brother was at a movie with some of his friends, and there were three or four guys. I don't remember. In fact, I only remember one of the other guys that was present with him. I wasn't there, uh, and I remember him relaying this to me. And so they went to this movie, and I mean, very early on in the movie, my brother, uh, it, it became very clear, okay, I, ha- I, I just have no business as a believer being in this movie. And so he just leaned over to his friend uh, next to him. The guy's name was Adam. And he just leaned over and he said, Hey, Adam, um, man, I just realized that this is, I can't be here, brother. I'll be in the hallway. I'll meet you guys when we're, when, when we're done. Don't leave. Don't get up. You're fine. I'll just, I'll see you afterwards. So quietly grabbed his stuff, left, didn't say anything. Adam didn't say anything. Well, a few minutes later, Adam and the two other guys come out and, and they've got their stuff and they're like, let's leave. And my brother's like apologizing. Guys, no, I'm so sorry. I, I, I didn't, you didn't have to leave. I just didn't feel like I could leave. Um, and so they're talking for a minute and Adam finally stops my brother Joey and he says, quit apologizing for your convictions. And then what he says next has been so piercing. Ever since my brother told me, I've just been so like, man, what, what, what an amazing thing for us to realize. And he looked at my brother and he said, I would give anything to believe in something like you do. See, it's the distinction. That's what sets us apart. It's the holiness that sets us apart. That's what holiness means. Right? To be set apart, that we're, a, that we're a community that's a holy community. That's what makes us distinct, that we're a generous community. We talked about that last week at chapter uh, 16, that we're willing to give of ourselves. And that's not just financially, but it's not less than that either. Right? Willing to give even though I'm not going to get something back. A community that serves, this is what Paul talks about in chapter 4, is a servant. And then just one other thing here real quick, that we're a community that reconciles. That's a distinctive element of... What's supposed to be true in the church. In fact, the account in chapter 5, one of the beautiful things about that brother that they hand over to discipline is in 2 Corinthians, we see that he's been restored because he's been repented, which is beautiful. Um, But so many of the issues of the book uh, in 1 Corinthians, we, we see a failure to reconcile. I was thinking about this and I was just actually reviewing the, the expectations for membership. And one of the things that we have here 
Right? As a member, I agree to authentic biblical communication and engagement when conflicts arise. That's what the church is intended to do. I mean, anyone can run away when there's conflict, but, but what believers do is they run toward one another to resolve conflict. That's what Paul is calling this distinct community to. It's a biblical community that's wildly distinct. All right, let me stop there. We got some questions? Okay. All right, here's my, here, here's my quick preface. No guarantees, okay? I'll do the best that we can. Uh, I'm handing myself rope and we're going to swing or I'm going to hang myself. We'll find out. All right. Regarding 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 32, uh, so Lord's table, what are some ways I can prepare my heart for the Lord's table so that I don't partake in a rote or unworthy manner? So true confession, we actually had this one first service as well, uh, so this is not totally new. couple things with this. I, I think there's two different aspects uh, on this. One is the rote or routine dynamic, and then secondly, the unworthy uh, uh, item that Paul talks about later in the chapter. So, so in terms of how, how do I avoid the Lord's table, being wrote. In one sense, I don't think that's the end of the world. And that might surprise you. Let, let me explain. The, the idea of it being normal for us to find ourselves being reminded of what Christ has done for us, that's not a bad thing. I'm guessing the question of rote has something to do with, um, with, with I'm apathetic or I'm indifferent or I'm callous towards it. And that's wildly different. We don't want anything to do with that. But the idea of routine, we don't ever want to begrudge routine. The vast majority of our life is normal, mundane routine. Exodus was so helpful uh, in teaching, well, at least teaching me that, okay? Uh, but, but in a road, so, so in this, yes, it's good for us to have routine on this. How do I avoid being apathetic to it? A couple things. First of all, look at what Jesus, I think Paul and Jesus answer the question for us. In verse 24 and 25, with both respect to uh, the bread and the cup, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Right, to remember Christ. So here's something that happened this week. I was flipping through, actually not flipping through, I was cleaning out um, a couple files on my computer and I came across this old uh, file that had a bunch of pictures of our kids when they were really little. So Davis, you were three, right, in this picture. And there was this, actually this one picture where you, Davis, actually kind of a similar goofy look like you got right now. People can't see you, but it was this super goofy grin in this picture. And, and it just sat on my computer. You know, you start looking and you just start clicking through. And I just sat there and I looked at that. And, and of course, th that didn't happen in a vacuum. That was at a specific event that we had taken our kids to. It was this really fun event. So I began to think about that event and I began to think about that particular day. I began to think about when my kids were little and they always did what they were told. Oh, that was glorious, right? And, um, and, and some other thing, but, but it's, it's, what was stoked in the remembrance, you could have said, hey, Mike, do you remember that day when blank? And I could factually recall that. And I think what Jesus is helping us towards here is not just a factual recollection, but a relational recollection to remember what he's done for us. I think that dynamic becomes really, really helpful for us. Um, and then the unworthy manner is what he's talking about later in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, starting in verse 27. He says, whoever eats 
the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So I think the answer, right, about the unworthy is to examine ourselves, to ask God to help us be discerning with respect to ourselves. I don't know about you. I don't ever find myself beginning to try to discern what's going on in my life and the Holy Spirit saying, hey, there's no sin here. That just never happens. Um, what almost always happens is there's more there than I even I would have thought. And so as the Spirit unearths all that, I'm reminded of my guilt and my sin and my inadequacy before the Lord. And now communion becomes sweeter and richer and more glorious because I'm reminded of my forgiveness. I think one other thing too, um, in verse 26, this was so, I had just never seen this till we did this text. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's that future hope of the return and the resurrection. And I think that too, if nothing else, just to be reminded that the, 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 the junk that we live in today is not the junk that we're gonna live in for all of eternity. Uh, ho- hopefully that's helpful in that. All right, next question. <clears throat> Chapter 112, does Paul imply, I follow only Christ, adds to the division? Why add this to the list of divisive focuses isn't I follow only Christ the correct stance? Okay, so let's, let's go back and look at this. Um, here's what's going on. Let me back up. Verse uh, 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. Okay, so that's the context here. But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean. Okay, so here's the quarreling. One of you says, I follow Paul. I follow Paulus. Or I follow Cephas. Or I follow Christ. Here's the I follow Christ at the end of 12. I follow John MacArthur. I follow Mark Driscoll. I follow, insert insert your favorite pastor here. I only follow Jesus. Yeah, probably not, but you just want to have the the conversational upper hand. Because we've all got our people. And what Paul is saying in that is, is, you're trying to act like you're not part of the problem. So there's a little bit of snark and sarcasm that's going on here. And he goes on, right? He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Yes, obviously to only follow Christ is the desire. But understand in 1 Corinthians 1 that it's not really this legitimate, oh yeah, I'm following Jesus. I'm kind of sticking it to these other morons over here that are following these guys that aren't Jesus. And that's part of the issue of division, right? Self-righteousness is never helpful. Uh, And that's part of what's happening here. I hope that's helpful. Uh, Let's go to the next one. If we love what God loves and hate what God hates, what is our response to the growing homosexual community to stand firm to what God says he hates and yet love and be a light? Okay, let me do two things. First of all, let me, let me, we'll come back to the homosexual community in a moment, but let's, because the truth is we could replace that with a number of different things. We can talk about gender confusion. We can talk about abortion. We can talk about all kinds of different things and, and, and insert that into that. So let me back up from the homosexual thing and let me just deal with the question in totality. If we love what God loves, what is it that God loves? God loves people. Okay? That's what God loves. God loves people. God died for people. Uh, and so uh, if we love what God loves, okay, and we hate what God hates, what does God hate? God hates sin. 
Uh, and, and just for the sake of, of this illustration, does God hate your self-righteousness more or less or the same as homosexuality? Same. Okay, so just, just so we're fair, and I'm not saying that just because we have a, a staunch view on homosexuality that makes us self-righteous, I just more often than not, that tends to be the case that we run with that. So what's important for us is to know that we want to love what God loves, which means we love people that we're concerned for people, that we have a desire for people, which, by the way, bear the same image of God that you and I bear, okay? Uh, and so we want to hate sin. So we can look at homosexuality and go, yeah, uh, hey, we're, we're out on that. Or we can look at abortion and say, we're out on that because here's how it undermines God's intention, right? All these different things. Uh, so, so love of people, hatred of sin, I think that's helpful. What do we do with homosexuality? Well, in, in the short sense, I think more often than not, we're chasing a fool's errand with homosexuality. And here's what I mean by that. The vast majority of the time, we want people to quit being homosexual before we ever want them to be saved. You're wasting your time. Like, that's not how God worked with you. Like, God demonstrates his love for us in, in this and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, so, so I'm not sure why it'd be different for us and everything else we've seen in the Bible and some other group of people. So the response to what do we do with homosexuality? Well, we point those people to Jesus. And we want to keep directing and pointing those people to Jesus. Now, to stand firm? Yes, by all means. Homosexuality is a distortion of God's intention for man and woman in, in, in a, uh, a lifelong covenant commitment in marriage. So is divorce is a distortion of that. Adultery is a distortion of that. Fornication is a distortion of that. So again, one of these things that I think is helpful for us is to go, hey, we can own that that's sinful, but we also got to own the other ways that, that there's sin in this and be equally grieved. I think that's part of the issue. We hear about people having a, an affair and we're just kind of like, ah, oh, that's a bummer. We hear about someone who comes out and it's like we grab pitchforks. That's incongruent. We need to be equally grieved. Both, both of them are grievous sins, uh, and we need to be congruent and fair and consistent uh, in light of that. So I think, I think yes, we stand firm, um, but we love what God loves, which means we love people. And that's what Paul was talking about early in the letter, right? Can I love people that aren't kind and patient and are envious and boastful and arrogant and rude and all these other things? Uh, so hopefully that's helpful. I'm not sure if I even answer the question or not, but uh, I'm, I'm kind of confused, so I'm moving on. Okay. <laughs> when we struggle to obey God's word, is that evidence of disbelief or a self-centered attitude? That's a really good question. Um, <clears throat> here, a, c- a couple things come to my mind. Uh, f- first of all, Romans 6 and 7 is helpful for us in this. We all struggle to obey God's word, at least completely and, and with totality. Uh, so so the, the person, if you wrote this and you're like, everyone else at church is a perfect Christian. No, they're not. Okay. Uh, they're wrestling with a lot of the same thing. So let's, let's own that right out of the gate. Um, is that evidence of disbelief or a self-centered attitude? I don't think those, I, I, I guess as I'm rereading it, I'm hearing it differently than the first time I did. Um, is, it, is it evidence of disbelief? Not necessarily. It might be evidence of sinful rebellion, 
Uh, it might be evidence of a sense of autonomy in your life. Uh, and, and so here's the deal, right? I can read something and go, man, this is really hard for me to do. And that's radically different than I don't want to do that or I'm not going to do that. So, so it's hard to totally answer this question without seeing some of the nuance or the ways that this could play. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just assume it's not blatant rebellion. But there is a sense where I read something in God's word And if God's word is not ultimately authoritative in my life, that is a rebellion and rejection of God. Maybe not in a sense of unbelief, right? In chapter 3, 1, he tells them, I can't address you as spiritual. He's not saying you're not saved, but he is saying you're immature, repent and grow up. And so at some level, that might be part of what it is. Um, And so a self-centered attitude, that might be really generous, how about an autonomous, wicked, rebellious attitude? That might be the other end of the spectrum, but I think it's fair for us to call a spade a spade. See, Paul does... Let me show you this in 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14 is a great text um, to answer a lot of different questions where we're just not sure of things. So, so if you ever find yourself going, hey, I'm not really sure uh, on, on this gray area, First Corinthians or uh, Romans 14 is going to be really, really helpful. So here's what Paul says at the end of Romans 14. He says, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Now listen to what he says next. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So here's what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying that, that, that and, and the, the, the context is food offered to idols. He's saying, it might not be wrong for you to eat food offered to idols. But if you're not convinced that it's okay to do, but you do it anyway, it's wrong for you to do it. Why? Because at the end of the day, even though you weren't convinced, you chose to do what you wanted to do instead of what you thought God was telling you to do. And so I think that's part of the issue here is, is this notion of um, fully convinced, not eating from faith. So to struggle with what the word says, all of us at some level are going to wrestle with that. Romans 6 and 7, right? I don't do what I should do. I do the things I shouldn't do. Uh, that, that's just part of living in, in the, the, the fallen nature of this world. Um, but at a deeper level, a sense at which we just go, God said this and, and I need to do this. Versus God said it and I'm not going to do it. That's a rebellion and rejection of what God's called us to. And if you're on the fence in that, you want to default back to what you know definitively. Let's do one more quick here. Oh, okay. Uh, Wow, this won't be quick. I'll try to make it quick. Based on what we see in 1 Corinthians 5, how should the church understand membership and discipline? So this is the text. Guys sleeping with stepmom. They're going to boot him out of the church. Um... Let's start with the discipline. Okay. Uh, Into verse two, let him who has done this be removed from among you. So there is a discipline. He goes on and says, uh, for though absent of the body and present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. This is really interesting here. You church are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So first of all, the purpose of discipline, don't ever forget this, the purpose of discipline is always, always, always spiritual restoration. Always. Now, the Corinthian church, Paul's willing for this guy to suffer physically with hopes that he will be restored spiritually. Okay, so don't, don't confuse that. 
But the goal is always spiritual restoration. The notion of membership in chapter 5 is that it's the church who chooses to deliver someone over. It's not just a pastor. I mean, just the elders. It's the church collectively, right, that would say, hey, these are the expectations. You violated the expectations. You don't want to repent for violating the expectations. You're unwilling to flinch on the expectations. We can't in good confidence say that you're in right standing with God and we would rather hurt your feelings so that you would be restored spiritually than make your feelings happy but be seriously concerned for your spiritual well-being. That's what's happening in 1 Corinthians 5. I could preach a whole other sermon on that, but I won't. Um, and we have actually overrun our time. So let's do this. I'm going to close right now. Why don't you stand? I'm going to pray over us. I know this is kind of an abrupt end. Thank you for those questions. Uh, I hope and trust that that was helpful. Uh, I'm going to pray over us and we will be uh, dismissed. But before I do that, I totally forgot to do this first service. Folks up front, if we can pray for you or with you on anything, uh, would love to be able to do that down in the middle. Uh, So whether it's something from today, something you got going on in your life, uh, just something totally off the radar. Hey, I need prayer on this. uh, Would love to be able to do that. Let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we pray, God, we we thank you for this book. Uh, We thank you for your words of exhortation, God, for correction, for encouragement. Uh, God, we trust uh, conviction and and, and all the other things that your spirit is doing. And God, we pray that you would help us uh, to navigate and to negotiate and to think through and work through all that you would have for us. And God, our desire, God, our desire is that in the messiness and in the brokenness and in the flawed reality of what church is, that we would be driven towards you, that we would uh, follow you, that we would walk closely with you for your namesake and for your glory. So God, as you send us out today, would you accomplish that within us? Jesus, we thank you. We love you. And we just pray this in your name. Amen.